0: to the next episode in our Star Trek film series. Idea, of course, courtesy of Darren, which will be discussed with Graham and Jeff. Neil would normally be with us, but he has some trouble with tribbles, whatever that (laughs) means. I'm pleased to say Captain Darren is here to guide us. Hi, Darren. How are
1: you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Living long and prospering.
0: Excellent. So we're back talking Star Trek. Last time we discussed Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. A goodbye to the original cast members, ending with that wonderful flourish of their signatures on screen. Now, you would have thought that was the end of the Star Trek films. However, Paramount wanted to bring the small screen success of The Next Generation to the cinema screen. Clearly, they weren't in it for the money. So, in this episode, we're going to look at Star Trek Generations, the first of the four Next Generation films, Set phases to Stun, and let's talk Generations. And Darren, I'm looking at you, and we're going to do a slight recap. It's like one of those TV shows, you know, where you go back last time. And in the last episode, you spoke about a possible bridge between the original Star Trek and Next Generation crew at the finale of Undiscovered Country. Can you please remind us of what this was and why it was dropped?
1: Well there was an idea for the ending of the Undiscovered Country and it was Patrick Stewart would make an appearance and have a meeting with Kirk, and there was gonna be a a symbolic handing over of the keys of the Enterprise. The original crew going on the way and passing on to the new crew. Now obviously this was not going to work because uh, Next Generation is placed 100 years after the adventures of the original crew. They did a more subtler handover because at the end of uh, Undiscovered Country, when Kirk recreates the Where No Man Has Gone Before speech, he actually says Where No One Has Gone Before, which is actually how we uh, uh, Patrick Stewart used to introduce episodes of the Next Generation. They actually changed the No Man to to No One, you know. So that little subtle bit was kind of like a sort of a passing on to the next crew and the new generation. So what you're
0: saying, thirty years ago, Star Trek saw the future and went woke.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't say woke, maybe, <gasps> maybe just maybe just a little bit progressive.
0: Something I've never been accused of. All right, let's talk about the Next Generation TV series then, which ended early in 1994. Were you guys fans of the show? And if so, what was it that appealed to you about the programme? Graham? I'll kick off with you first. Yeah, I was a
2: huge fan. It had a very rocky start. The first series I thought was pretty poor, but God, it certainly picked up after that. And it was just lovely to have Star Trek back on telly and be able to sit down on a weekly basis and, and watch some Star Trek. I thought it was great. Well, until it got to the last episode of, of the seventh series, I think it was, where it just all fell to pieces. But All hey, good
0: things, I believe. is the, All I good know that things, happened,
2: and it was all bad things, I thought.
0: Yeah, well, more on that episode shortly. Okay, what about you, Darren?
1: I did become a fan. Uh, eventually. Like Graham, I uh, I personally didn't take to it right away. I thought it was very cheap. It felt very old fashioned in the format. And it felt like they were trying to do things in the same way that the original series did but not as, as clever. They're using the sets for the planets. It just it just looked really poor but funnily enough, it was, it was my, my parents who actually they were the ones who carried on watching it and they were saying now that they like the characters in this one better which I never expected, because when they first announced Next Generation, the whole thing was that you're never going to get a crew better than Kirk and and Spock and and McCoy. And when I did start watching it, the thing that really got me on board was the Borg Best of Both Worlds uh, two-parter, which was, you put those two episodes of that together, it rivals most of the Star Trek movies. I just really liked the variety of episodes. I mean, sometimes you would have these science babble episodes. Sometimes you'd have things that had like really subtle political aspect. You also had episodes which were funny. And also I think the, the, uh, the characters eventually came into their own and, you know, they would get their own episodes where you would learn more about them and they would take centre stage. And, yeah, I, I really got into it. I disagree slightly there because while I think the final season was really bad except for a few sort of uh, episodes i i personally think that all good things i think that's a great finale i think it's a wonderful story to, f- to finish off for uh, next generation i i i really liked it and i think it you know it's really clever uh we might come to that later but yeah i i personally think it was a really good oh
0: definitely we'll come to that later
1: yeah, I-, I think it was a really good way to finish up the series thank you
0: darren well I have clearly haven't got the staying power that you two have. I did watch the first series. I found it humorless and often boring, and I give up rather than persevered. And I go back to Wayne's World, where they talk about difference between the original and next generation. And I'm changing slightly around what they said for my own benefit. Original is like high-quality champagne. This next generation to me was Tesco's Prosecco. But I accept I don't have the staying power or the attention that you guys have had. So, as we said, the TV series ended in 1994, controversially, between our two Star Trek experts here, and we'll (laughs) talk about that shortly. And the film came out in America before the end of that year. We had to wait, as per usual at that time, a number of months. We got it in February, '95. Was that too soon? After all, if you think about it, When the original Star Trek series finished, it took 11 years for a film to come out. This didn't even take 11
1: months. Darren, too soon? Yeah, I mean, I think there is something to be said for making fans wait and really crave something. And I'm not saying that they needed to have like years and years wait, but I think it may be a year just to let sort of fans miss the next generation crew just a little bit, that would have made it feel a bit special. Having the film come out so quickly after the end of the of the TV series, I think it almost made it made it feel like a TV special rather than a movie that you're really uh, waiting for. And the reason why they did that apparently is that they, they really wanted to keep the momentum going. And before the first season of Voyager which came out just a, a few months after Generations, it would help keep Star Trek fresh in people's minds. It did feel just a bit too soon.
0: star is going to collapse in a matter of minutes.
1: That'll destroy
2: everything in this system.
0: Population? 230 million, sir. Why would he destroy a star? I have to stop it. But I can't do this alone. I need help. I know someone who can. You say history considers me dead. Who am I to argue with history? You're a Starfleet officer. You have a duty. I don't need to be lectured by you. I was out saving the galaxy when your grandfather was in diapers. Now, the torch of adventure is about to be passed. Eliminate them. Obviously, you'll accuse me of being cynical here, but was it also they could use the same sets
1: to be cheaper? No, I think you're perfectly right. In fact, as as we go on, I think one of the things you realise about Next Generation is why it was so rushed and why it was so after was a lot of cost-cutting exercises. The already have the sets, the infrastructure in place, the writers and everything, the casting, the crew and everything. It makes sense from a sort of from a financial point of view. I don't think you're being cynical. I think you're being quite insightful actually.
0: Thank you very much, Darren. I'll take that. That'll probably be my one compliment for the whole show.
1: Don't encourage him. He's probably read it somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Let's, let's go back to the person who wanted Mel to be the captain. Oh. Uh, so do you think it was too soon, Graham?
2: Well, at, at that time, 95, I had three children under six years old. And um, we went to see it together, uh, my wife and I, and um, she fell asleep in it. So I was thrilled to get out of the house and watch it. So I didn't care about how soon it was. But yes, it probably was too soon, but I didn't care.
0: Okay, so that leads into my next question, which before we again focus on the making of the film. So, at that time, other than being able to stay awake through it, (laughs) what what other impressions did it make on you on that first viewing? It's quite a romp
2: in the first act, really tears along. It's quite funny. It is sort of cinematic in the first bit, but we'll talk about that later. So, and you have the comedy element, you have Kirk disappearing. And it's very, very good. And I thought, yeah, this is great. I'm into this now. I liked them using the holodeck as well, data and all of that. It was just, I really enjoyed it. And when I watched it again for this show, I was surprised how well it stood up. I really had a great time with it. I thought it was excellent. And uh, and we've had some terrible Star Trek movies, which we've reviewed over the, the last year or so. And this one I actually really enjoyed. And um, apart from the music, I thought it was spot on. It was very much like a, a big TV show rather than a movie.
0: OK, Darren, you're a big fan. You would attract this film during its development. So when you first saw it, did it meet your expectations or were you disappointed?
1: Well, just to backtrack a little bit on that, this film came out, well, for me at least, pre-internet days and I'll be perfectly honest, I wasn't really up on what was actually happening in movies until they actually sort of appeared in the theatre. My first time that I actually saw anything about this was I was going to the cinema and I saw a poster for Generations. It just had Picard and um, Kirk's faces on them. and on the bottom of the screen you saw the, uh, the new Enterprise. And I was like, oh, wow, they're doing a crossover. So that that was my first inquiry. I, I wasn't aware that they were basically making a film at who, who was in it. And also my first belief was, oh, it, there must be some sort of time travel style thing and we're going to get both crews yes. um, meet, meeting. Yeah. But that is what I thought we were going to get. Obviously, we, we didn't get that. But the very first clip I ever saw of it, funny enough, I was I was watching TV with, with my mum and they showed you just the clip of Kirk telling Stuart, don't lecture me, I was saving the universe before your grandpa was in diapers. And we both had big smiles on my face because we we knew we were going to get Kirk and um, Picard meeting. So I've got to say, when I went to see it, as as a Next Generation fan, I got a real kick out of the Next Generation not being on the screen and that. And and I've got to say, I was at that stage in life. I wasn't, I'm not saying I'm insightful now when it comes to movies, but I I just kind of, I wasn't that sort of... Really paying attention to like things like you know story and, and and you know build and things like that. So so I was just there just just for the Star Trek on the big screen, and seeing the next generation guys. So I got a kick out of it. Later on, on more viewings, I did see problems with it, which we will come to to later. But at, at the time, mm. it, it made me happy. It had the meeting with Picard and Kirk. He had a couple of the uh, original uh, member cast. So you know, for me, it made it made me happy at the time. But it's something that's. Since then, I sort of took it and I can see the, uh, you know, problems with it. I've got to admit, I, even at the time, it didn't feel like this was the next generation movie that I was waiting for. It, it did feel like I was watching um, a TV special on, on the big screen.
0: Okay. You said you didn't know a lot about it before going in. Did you know? And this is a spoiler alert, although, to be honest, if you are caught by surprise by this spoiler, You are listening to the wrong podcast. So find another one of our episodes, please. Did you know that Kirk was going to die?
1: Yeah. I have to say, back then, studios didn't seem to be as worried about spoilers as what they are today. You know, nowadays, they really try to keep things on the wrap so people are surprised. Back then, I mean, it was the same with Spock. I think everybody knew going in that Spock in in Rathakar was going to die. And I think it, maybe it's kind of like mm. a, a selling point that this was going to be, this is the last chance you get to see Kirk. So so, so yeah, I, I I was pretty much aware of, that Kirk died in, in this film. I don't think I knew exactly how. It seemed pretty common knowledge he was going to die. At least I could do. With the
0: captain of the Enterprise. Okay, so let's jump back into the making of it. Now, throughout this series, I've constantly complained about bringing in writers who had no experience on science fiction and Star Trek in particular. Now, that can't be said with this film. Ronald Moore and Brannon Braga wrote many episodes of The Next
1: Generation. So were they a good choice to make the feature film? Darren? I think, like most of the choices, they were the perfect choices for what Paramount wanted, I think they wanted someone who could come up with something fast, so that they could get right into production as soon as they'd stop making uh, the TV series. I mean, the turnaround was really quick. I mean, they they literally stopped filming the TV series and then went right onto the to the movie. They wanted someone who who knew the show, who who didn't have to go and watch twenty odd episodes to get a feel for the characters, people who knew knew what they were doing and go right into it. So for for that, I think they were perfect for what the job called for. Okay. Graham? The writing is okay. There are some plot points that um,
2: really don't work out quite as well as they should. But I think as, as script writers, they're not bad. And they're certainly a lot better than some of the script writers they had on other shows who hadn't got a clue uh, who half the characters were. And I think they played to the character's strengths and they, They didn't spend much time developing the characters because everybody's supposed to know them. So they got round that hurdle quite quickly. The script was actually not bad apart from the, the cock up at the end. But hey, you know, stuff happens.
0: OK, we'll talk more about this as we go through. In preparation for this uh, episode, people think that we throw this together. We don't. I actually listened to the Blu-ray commentary track with the two writers. And I'll give them the a due. They admit to a lot of mistakes they made when writing this, because this is their first feature film. And I think, personally, they weren't cinematic enough. And we'll go and talk about mm. that in more detail very shortly. But at the same time, when they scripted this, they were writing all good things. And as we've already seen, Graham and Darren, you've got different opinions on that uh, double header. And the writers admitted they got confused sometimes about what element should go <laughs> into the film script, what element should go into good, all good things. Was that a mistake to have approached both in that manner? Graham, you're negative on all good things. So I'm going to start with you. <laughs>
2: I know you've listened to the um, the commentary track and therefore you know that they, these guys were feeling they were uh, under a lot of pressure at the time. And, I mean, if you think Generations ended in November 94 and in March 95, they had this show, uh, the, the the film, uh, they were under an awful lot of pressure. That's, what, four months, five months to do stuff. And it's... Well,
0: no, don't forget, November 94 in the States. Yes. So, Yeah.
2: They were under an awful lot of pressure, and I think they did a a first-rate job, really, under the pressure they were under. I just didn't like All Good Things. Before All Good Things, there were a couple of really good episodes in the last season, and I thought, oh, they're going to finish on a massive cliffhanger. And it sort of peters out. We get introduced to the Travellers, and Wesley Crusher
1: comes back. You know, I need to go back and rewatch All Good Things as well. I personally love All Good Things. I think it's a great finale. I think you might be getting it mixed up actually with an earlier episode because all all those elements you just uh, described they happen in an episode, a couple of episodes before All Good Things. You're probably or Star
0: Trek face off. Everybody duck.
1: Well, I think it's a Star Trek rewatch. Yeah, All Good Things is one where Q comes in and sends Picard through three different timelines. So one is, is minute mm. is at the very first start of the next generation where he's with the original crew and then he's in the present and then he's in the future and he keeps splitting between the three different timelines. I think it's a really ambitious storyline and it's uh, it basically has... you know.
2: No, I, I think you're right. I think you're yeah. right, Darren. I think I've got these muddled up in my head. I mean, my only defence is it, it is 26, yeah. 27 years ago.
1: Yeah. twenty eight years ago, there. Yeah, ever ever watch because because we are all on Netflix. But it, it it's, and to me, it's a really good finale. And he also ends in this wonderful scene where Picard, for the first time, he joins the card game that we always see the generation crew having a card game where, where the bond. Yes, and, and he's yes, never yeah. he never, Ooh. and then in the final episode, he comes in and says, um, "I should have done this a long time ago." And I said, "You are always welcome." And he, he starts dealing hand. He says, "And the skies the limit." It's like the adventures I just started so I think it's a great way to finish off but I do think generations isn't as tightly written uh, I think it does get really really messy the, the, the whole nexus um, element is kind of mm. like muddled it, it feels rushed to I, th- I think the first two-thirds of a film are, are great like the uh, the investigate, you know, the investigation trying to find out what's happening, chasing Soren and stuff. But I think when it gets to the actual nexus, it just feels quite rushed. Maybe if they'd had time to do like rewrites before they went into production, I think they could have ironed out a lot of these yeah. things. And 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 sadly as well, let, let, let's face it, the budget that they had to deal with. They spent so much money on the um, on the scene in the boat at the, uh, the start of The Next Generation story and the big sort of observation deck that they, they, they didn't leave a lot for the big finale. And I think they were two elements that... I don't know why that's what they spent all the money on. but I don't know a lot about film production, but I do know that working on water is a nightmare. <laughs> so why they would actually just do a throwaway scene on that is is beyond me. But I think... They should have had more time to iron out the kinks of of generations. It doesn't sound an ideal thing to me to be working on two big projects like that at the same time.
0: Okay, that's interesting because I can tell you where that ship thing came from because they address it in the script. That wasn't the way it was going to start. It was going to cut to the future. Somebody's in distress from one of these other races. The Enterprise comes in last minute and saves them. And the producer looked at it and said, well, we've seen that before. You want something different. You want something unexpected. Something like, I don't know, Picard on the floor pushing a pee around with his nose. Something as unexpected as that. And that's where they came up with the ship sequence.
2: I liked the ship sequence. I really did. It was so unexpected. And, you know, I remember in the cinema going, wow, really? <laughs> this is good. But- yeah, I that,
0: that that's interesting what Darren's saying because this cost sixty million. A lot of the sets were there, left over from you know mm. the TV series, and yet they go and spend that, and they literally did. They went, they flew halfway around the world to get and go on board that ship. Talking about the expenses, so apart from the writers, they brought in David Carson as the first time film director. He directed episodes of Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. Dennis McCarthy came on board composing the music which, again, is fairly generic. I guess the question is, did that give a continuity to the film? And my take on this is, as I said before, I just felt these were TV people. Their cinematic imaginings weren't big enough, and I felt that showed on screen. But, Darren, do you agree with me or not?
1: Yeah, I've said several times it it did feel more like an expensive TV special. Than something that was going to be in theaters as as a big movie. First contact to me is is the real first proper next generation cinema movie, you know, because that's really where they sort of like mm. you know really went all out to make make something epic. It's funny actually because D- David Carson he actually directed one of my favorite episodes of Next Generation ever, which was um, yesterday's Enterprise. A really fun exciting episode and one of the things about that is there's a time warp where you see an alternative version of what the enterprise would have been because it's kind of like this alternate universe type um, scenario and one of the things about it is that they're at war and so the ship's all all darker there's not as much lighting and stuff and that to me feels a lot like the look that we got on generations one of the things that they did is that the you know the crew and 10 forward and everything it's a lot darker you know, the lighting and everything. It feels more like we're trying to get away from a TV series set-wise and give this just a little bit more um, cinematic flair to it, you know, which I found a little bit jarring. One of the things as well, I thought Data looked weird. I mean, I know his character has a real strange thing, but the actual, the complexion of the paint used on him, he kind of looked odd. He didn't look as sort of crisp as what he does in the TV show. It looked a little bit jarring to me.
0: So let's talk about the key selling point of this film, which was the two captains meeting. And to get to that stage, they had to set a prologue up, set in what was the past with that original cast. Now, when I say original cast, there were very few of them in that sequence. Darren, what was the original idea with the sequence and why did it change?
1: there was a lot of controversy uh, about this at the time because the idea originally was that the entire original crew would be in that opening scene this was something that the next generation cast were um, were assuming as well because a lot of them until they actually saw the you know the, the film later on didn't realize that they only had three members at the start the idea was going to be that they would have the entire crew, and they, they just assumed that they you know it was going to be a, you know a big massive Star Trek film, and obviously that didn't happen. What put paid to it was the budget. The producers decided that it would be better if they just had a couple of members uh, with Shatner instead. So the the plan was that the two that the um, that they had in mind to be with Shatner were McCoy and, and Spock. And that's what they wrote the, the, the script around. And The fact is that Defrost Kelly wasn't really on board with this because he felt he'd had a, a good enough send-off in Undiscovered Country. And Nimoy actually did look at the script, but he felt that he didn't feel like Spock. He felt like any of the, uh, the members could be reading his lines out. He didn't think his character was in there. And they did actually, uh, the producers did come to him with the idea of uh, having him direct that he even turned that down because he just wasn't interested. So the two that they've decided on and who were willing to do it were um, Chekhov and and Scotty. And from all accounts, it sounds like that they pretty much just transferred the lines that um, were written for McCoy and Spock over to Chekhov and Scotty. You can see that a little bit in the film because if you notice... When everything goes tits so up, they have to organise this new crew, Chekhov organises the infirmary. So you can see that it looks pretty much like that, that was meant to be what McCoy would have done. The big story about all this, though, is Whoopi Goldberg, because she was absolutely gutted when she found out she wasn't going to be working with uh, Michelle Nichols. And she actually arrived on set and she's walking around and saying, like, you know, where's Michelle? Where's Michelle?" And she was gutted because she assumed that she was going to be sharing the screen with her because it was really important to her that these two, uh, you know, black women characters from the two series would actually meet. And Whoopi Goldberg, in a, in an interview, apparently one of her big inspirations as a kid to be an actress was when she saw Star Trek because she watched an episode and apparently she ran into her to find her mum and said the line... I've just seen a black woman on TV and she's not a maid. She's on a starship. So to her, this was
2: <laughs> brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. So,
1: yeah. And, and so, That's and, great. Yeah. And so this to her w- would have really meant a lot. And it was sort of disappointing that she didn't get to, uh, to do this scene. Got to remember as well, back, back in the day when Next Generation what was around, you didn't get a lot of movie stars appearing in TV shows. And it sure shows, shows, shows how much Whoopi Goldberg loved Star Trek that she wanted to be as a semi-regular, basically, you know. And I, I think it's a shame that we yeah. didn't get that moment between the two.
0: Based on what you just said, I would love to have seen a scene in the TV series where Kirk battling off against the Klingon, saying, "Lance, this has all gone tits up." <laughs> um, <laughs> I'd pay extra for that scene. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh. This sequence, then, this whole thrown-together sequence, from what Darren's just been saying, culminates in the first of two deaths of Kirk. Did that leave you with an emotional charge? Graham?
2: Yes, it did. It did. I remember at the time going, mean, what? Uh, hang on. <laughs> was that it? I was, yeah, And then it's, it jumps, obviously, 70-odd years later. But at the time, I thought,
1: what's happened here? I, mean, I was quite baffled.
0: Darren, your thoughts on that first death of Kirk?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I didn't get emotional on this death because I, I knew enough, I'd seen the trailers, I knew he was coming back. So I knew this bit was a, a hoax. But okay. I think where, where the emotion in it for me is Scotty's reaction and, and Chekhov when he asks, is there anybody down there? And the look on them, Scotty's face. And that bit as well, when we find out what decks have been hit and we know that the deck that Kirk has been in is hit. Scotty when he's trying to hail him, that, that that to me is where where the power of the yeah. scene works because you you know Frank like, Frank like said for me I know he's coming back but that's that scene that sort of look on his face and, and Solo's daughters you know the, the the look it has a power in other people's reactions and you just think what if the whole crew would have been there for that 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 would have been really something special yeah. but even with the sort of the adjustments that we had to make, i, I do actually like that whole s- sequence i think shatner is so good in it when when the captain keeps coming up with his little ideas of and like kirk's like shaking his head like that's not gonna work and when he's sort of the looking is when uh, originally the captain doesn't want to take the enterprise into action and he's like in the look on his face it's like you've got to do something And I also love that bit where um, the captain finally asks him for advice and Kurt says, Go into the ribbon. And the captain says, But we'll get caught in it. And then Kirk just says, Yeah, we will. But that's just what you have to do. It does come across so well. I mean, to me, that is, in a way, that's more of a a good send off for Kurt because you see all the good things about him. He's sort of like, you know, his bravery, his sort of no nonsense stuff. So I think that is a, you know, a really great scene. But yeah, I knew he was coming back. Jeff's Rules
0: of Film Watching. Rule number six, if you don't see a body, don't believe they're dead. Yeah. Let's go forward in time now with this film and the meeting of the two captains. Now, there was an early poster. It was an idea of the two captains facing off against one another and the two Enterprises below locked in battle, which I assumed, Darren, was the poster you saw. However, in the film, when they first meet, the only thing being beaten are eggs for scrambling. What on earth happened between those two visions? And did Patrick Stewart, meeting with William Shatner for the first time, create a Frigion moment for you? Darren?
1: Yeah, the, the poster I first saw was the one of the two faces, so they weren't locked in battle. It was just kind of like a you know a, a crossover type. The idea when we, the writing process was, is that they commissioned two scripts which were going to compete against each other. So they brought in a writer called Maurice Hurley, whose main idea was that, Picard was going to create a hologram of Kirk to help him solve a, a, a problem, uh, which was like, kind of like a rehash of something that happened in the, uh, in the Next Generation series, but that was how his idea... Bergman and Moore, their original idea... I like that. I um, didn't
0: know that. I like that idea.
1: Yeah. Bergman and Moore's original idea was that they wanted the two Enterprise crews to battle each other in like a original series versus Next Generation series, and they had this idea of the two posters with the two enterprises locked in battle, the two crews. And it sounds like a really great idea. The problem is they couldn't come up with a scenario that made sense and that would work and would be actually true to both crews. And because one of them you would have to have sort of like be the villains of it somehow. They just said they they tried and tried and they just couldn't make it work. So they went with the more team-uppy type movie as it is. And yeah, I I can see that. It it, it would have been like a really fan-pleasing type story. I mean, for for years, there was always a joke about, you know, fans were were always arguing who'd win a fight between Picard and Kirk and everything. But there was just no way you could get something that was not going to come across as hokey or, you know, unbelievable. As for the meeting... Between Kirk and Picard, it was the moment that Trekkies had been waiting for for years. We'd had Spock meeting the crew. we'd had Scotty meeting the crew in an episode. We even had Defrost Kelly meeting Data in the in the, in the original uh, first episode. But this was the one that we all wanted, and and I've got to say, I really enjoyed it. Captain of the Enterprise.
0: I right. try. Close to retirement. I'm not planning on it. Let me tell you something. Don't. Don't let them promote you. Don't let them transfer you. Don't let them do anything that takes you off the bridge of that ship because while you're there, you can make a difference. Come back with me. Help me stop, Solon. Make a difference again. Who am I to argue with the captain of the Enterprise? There's
1: a lot of banter. There's a lot of fun. It's not as you know, spectacular as what we do, but you know, to me, it works. It, uh, you, know, you, you have them both in character, and Kirk is one with all the funny lines, that you know, Picard is the straight man. Um, I, I, I do like it. I think it works. My problem with, with the whole meeting is the actual premise that, that draws it together. When I saw one of the early clips to this, it was Kirk and then Picard talking and Kirk saying, I'm, I'm guessing that the situation is really grim and the odds are against us. And he thought, wow, this, this is going to be awesome. You know, This is like this real problem that it's taking the two Enterprise captains to solve. What, what it actually is, is that Picard gets his ass kicked in a one-on-one fight. And so he needs to find Kirk to come back with him so that they can team up on the bully. That is such a really weak threat. Now, originally, and this is another thing that got um, kicked to the curb because of the budget, the idea was that Soren on the planet would have a squad of Klingons with him. And Picard would try to beat Soren, but he would be outnumbered by these uh, Klingons. And the idea was that Kirk coming back with Picard, they would have to take on all the Klingons and Soren himself, and and, even the odds somewhat. Uh, so that was which I think would have worked really, you know, really, really well. And the idea was that as well that Pic- uh, Kurt would go down in a blaze of glory, you know, in a in a last stand type you know, scenario, which I, I think would have been a you know a lot bigger and a more dramatic action scene. But unfortunately, the, the budget and the time didn't support that. So we just had the uh, rather weak two on one storyline.
0: And let's be fair, Darren, if your answer to that problem is, we're going to go back to the moment of maximum danger because we can travel anywhere in time and take Soren out because it's dramatic, I personally wouldn't put Picard in charge of a refuge truck, never mind in charge of a bloody spaceship.
1: You should have gone uh, further back. But the one bit I actually do really like in, in that uh, meeting is about where Kirk warns Picard about accepting promotion or retiring because when when you're in that chair, you can make a difference, and I think that's that's a wonderful thing because that that's the thing about throughout the Star Trek movies that's the thing about Kirk. He hated when he was made an admiral because he want he didn't want to be Andy this. He wanted to be in the fight. He wanted to be making a difference. The, the only thing I, I think would have would have been benefited was if there had been some indication that Picard was wanting out of Starfleet or was starting to regret the decisions that he'd made to the fact that he wanted out of Starfleet. And you get the sense that he's regretting that he never had a family, but you don't see him really blaming that on Starfleet. And I think that would have had a bit more power to it, almost like a pep talk that Picard sort of realised that he's, he's he's not got the family, but look at all the lives he's saved by being captain of the enterprise look at all the threats he's, he's you know all the, the people whose lives is made better i think that would have been a, a good more powerful moment there if that, if there'd been some indication of that's what where picard's head was at even so it's a really nice you know speech from kirk i
0: am absolutely fascinated to be mulling over this thing of the other script with kirk as a hologram because all of these lines you know, the, to me, the solution to that problem would have been Picard finds himself in a situation that Kirk had got out of years before. But of course, Picard's thinking is completely different to Kirk's. So he has this hologram with him through this mission. And that sort of dialogue could come into it. To me, that would have been a far more interesting take than what we've ended up with. But let's just step up to one thing I really did like about this film and its theme of mortality. Picard has to face it through his family tragedy, which you told about at the very beginning. Soren wants to avoid it completely. And Kirk has to deal with it head on by the end. Did that theme work for you? And is it encompassed in Kirk's final two words, which weren't originally scripted, of, oh my. Oh my. Now, for me, it did. I I thought that play on uh, mortality was excellently done. Uh, Graham, what do you think?
2: Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that was one of the recurring themes through the whole thing. Picard's ending of his of his family line and how there be no more Picards and Kirk, his uh, mortality effectively died and gone to a better place and realized he was dead uh, and was quite happy to die again. Yeah, I think it was it was well done. Yeah,
1: that was a nice theme that went through it.
0: What about you, Darren?
1: Yeah. I... I... I mean, you, the, you know, the, the three characters, their, their motivations is you can and what they're going through, you can see that very much. I, I, I don't think it's just about mortality, though. I, I think it is about living life and moving forward. In this, you know, Soren wants to live forever, but he, he wants a fake life. If he gets what he wants, he's not getting his family back. He, he's getting like a simulation of it. And I think that's something that Kirk has to snap himself out for. And and when he sort of re- realizes it when he's when he's uh, jumping the um you know the, the, the small lake on, on the horse and he realizes that he's not scared of it and he's that's the thing about you know life the true purpose of his life is jumping back and being scared and doing it jumping back because you know it's a simulation you know it's 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 a it's a fake life you know remembering the past but using that to uh, you know to go to go forward not going back and just sort of reliving it a- again so I think there's a little bit more on them. Um, at work there than just simple you know mortality the thing i don't like about the mortality theme and this is something that i i think you probably sort of get in like what was expected of um 90s audiences as opposed to like 70s and 80s audience is how it feels like it has to spell it all out to you so, for example, at the end of it, Picard does this speech to Riker, effectively saying what he has learnt in this episode in this really jolly way. And it's almost like those TV shows, where those kids' cartoon shows, where at the end there are character and saying, in this episode, we all learnt about mortality. It's just like this, this kind of... I, I prefer stuff like in Rafa Khan, where Kirk, what he's learnt, is quite ambiguous at the end. And he doesn't come out and sort of say it, but you can you can basically see what he's learned, see, you know. And and with Picard, it feels like he doesn't trust the audience. It has to spell out, you know, what we've learned from this episode. So that, that's just something that I think is, is a difference from the, the audiences, from where we're at, where we get the Next Generation films.
0: But not only that; that backs up the argument that this is not cinematic because they framed it and wrote it in the way they would do a TV episode. So you have that little wrap-up coda that you know we're we this is what we learned going forward, and then it's all forgotten in the next episode. Although I would be fair to next generation, even at this time of reset TV, it did seem to have strands of stories running through episodes. I saw that in season one.
2: Okay. speaking of references back to Next Generation, there are many elements of this film which refer to specific episodes or spin-off series. The memory chip, the Klingon women and the different uniforms. Did they work for you, uh, Darren? And would they work for a general audience, do you
0: think? That would be me. But the general audience.
2: <laughs> Darren first, and then I'll come mm-hmm. to the general audience. Yeah,
1: yep. I'll come back to the uniforms in in a moment because there's actually a really funny story there. For me, as a next generation fan, I like the fact that we got the Jura sisters who appeared in several episodes of Next Generation and even in an episode of Deep Space Nine as well. So and I love those characters. I was fine with the membership but I didn't like how it affected the storyline going forward. As it comes to the the uniform, the original plan was that they were going to give the entire crew a brand new set of uniforms, which would look better on the big screen. The action figures that the original released to go with this film were wearing those uniforms. So the designs and everything were in place and and they looked quite good. The only thing is, again, to save money, they decided that they would go with the uniforms that they already had made up. The slight alterations that they had is that Deep Space Nine had altered their uniforms slightly and so they wanted to really have the main crew wearing those to, to reflect that. So Patrick Stewart's him being the star, they tailor-fitted his. But the rest of the crew had to use the uniforms that they'd already got from the cast of Deep Space Nine. So Jonathan Frakes, for example, he's wearing Avery Brooks's uniform. LeVar Burton, who's who's oh. Geordie, he's wearing Colmina's uniform. But The problem is that none of them fit. If you look, it's Riker's uniform. is way too small for him. He has to really roll up his sleeves, which you would never see on a Star Trek thing any other time. He has to roll up his sleeve to hide that. And LeVar Burton, he's, he's, you know, his costume's absolutely dwarfing him. Once you see it, you can't un- unsee it. And if you actually watch oh, no. through, throughout <laughs> the film... <laughs> There's a whole mismatch of uniforms. The rest of the cast, the, the background cast, they're wearing a combination of next-generation uniforms, Deep Space Nine uniforms. I think there's even a few Voyager uniforms in there. So so it oh, looks really all all over the place. It's the sort of thing that you probably just think, oh, you know, nobody's ever going to notice. But, you know, nowadays, because of the internet and everything, I'm, I'm rewatching, watching I think it looks really shoddy for somebody. Wow. I did not know any of that, and I am going to have to go back and watch that again. Oh, yeah, Riker really destroyed the film for me. Now I'll just yeah, Riker <laughs> is the one, but it really noticeable. And just look at his sleeves. Right. Well, going over to the general audience, the people who don't that have that either. level of
2: depth, yes, and, and who didn't
0: notice any of that on the uniform. So thank you for that <laughs> no story. Did I. But I had no idea what this memory chip thing was. I knew, again, from the first series, who this data carrier was. The uh, Klingon emotionship,
2: women, emotion chip, let's be
0: clear. Oh, emotion chip, yeah, right. <laughs> uh the Klingon Women, that went right over my head. Everybody seemed to know them. They made no concession for them. And this is the thing with Star Trek, right? This is where it lets itself down. Because when you make one of these films for a general audience, it has huge box office success. And I Star Trek the Motion Picture, Star Trek for The Voyage Home and the reboot of Star Trek with Christopher Pine. Those are more general films. When you get into this, the more you know the next generation, the more you take out of it, it turns off the general audience, of which I consider myself one. And that's why, yes, it has a certain amount of box office it can generate, because there are a lot of fans out there, but it can't go beyond that ceiling. And I think Star Trek's biggest flaw is its reverential nature, and that's reflected in those things not being explained to people like me.
1: Right, wow. with the emotion, Chip, I, I get you on that one. But with the Dura sisters, you, you don't really need to know anything. But They're Klingons. In fact, um, Solon says on the, when he first meets them, he gives their backstory when he says that they're trying to take over the Klingon Empire. And that's all you really need to know. There are yeah. a couple of badass Klingons. It's just bringing a couple of recognisable villains as a treat for the, the regular fans. Star Trek fans. But I don't think it that bit takes anything away.
2: So let's go and move on to talk's performances. I mean, Patrick Stewart and William Shatner apparently good friends on set. How do their very different approaches work in this movie?
1: Darren? I think they're a great double act. Their banter, their their dialogue, it's really true to their character. There were always debates over who was the best captain between Kirk and Picard, who would win a fight and all this nonsense. And it worked as a discussion because they were so different. (laughs) Picard worked as a character because he was so different to Kirk in, in the TV series. He wasn't the cowboy hero. He was more a thinker, a, a philosopher. To me, they really sort of nailed that difference between them. I think it does mean, however, that Kirk kind of steals over scenes between them because Picard comes across as a little more stiff. Kirk's the one having with all the fun lines. He's the one having fun. He's the one that has yeah. more to, to do with it. And so I think he does sort of steal that scene. That kind of makes it fun that you've got an old-fashioned cowboy-style, uh, you know, gung-ho hero and the more sort of stiff reserve, reserve um, character. That that makes it more fun for them to, to play off. And I do, watching that banter, I do wish that Kirk would have had more had interactions with the rest of the crew. I think Patrick Stewart excels in in the pain that is going through. I could, I could say, though, well, I don't think the film really is a good service for the Picard character, for again for people seeing him for the same time, because seeing him blubbering and, and moping and then finding out that his big dream in life is to have a Dickensian style of family life, it doesn't really... If you're watching this for the first time, you, you don't think... You're kind of thinking, this is our, this is our hero. When you see Kirk, you, you, you first meet Kirk, he's, he's chopping wood, he's doing manly things, he's you know, about to hook up with his um, scrambling girlfriend. eggs. Well, yeah, but, yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. He's doing that, like breakfast. hook up with his girlfriend and, and marry her. He's then he's then riding a horse through a thing. He's like, you know, this is a, a real you know macho character, and and Picard is upset and crying and everything. You can't help but see the contrast in in these two characters because of that, and and sort of, I think gravitate towards Kirk when Kirk finally comes up on screen. It's like, oh, thank God, something fun. I think you can't help but make the two comparisons when you're watching this. And I think because of that, Shatner kind of... i not saying that Shatner is a better actor than Patrick Stewart. No one would ever say that. But I think in this thing, he does steal the film from under Picard.
0: Uh, a slightly different take. I, I thought the Stewart character arc was really good. And, and Stewart is such a professional actor that he took that off. So he had a weight. And Kirk had that natural lightness. That he can play and I thought that you know the, the scenes between the two of them were pretty good I could have done with more of it I wouldn't want Kirk to interact with the rest of the crew for reasons we'll touch on shortly Darren was right it's the straight man comedy man double act yeah. and it, it plays out really well so yeah yeah I, I really like that
2: I did too I thought Kirk when you saw him chopping wood and all that it was all very swashbuckling from from Kirk and very thoughtful and reserved from Stuart. And I liked that was a really quite a a good contrast between them, but only by working together and bringing their own separate talents could they solve the Sorin problem. Darren's put that thought in my head with them fighting against the big group of Klingons Would have been so much better. I'm thinking like Boromir when he at the end of the first episode where he he takes on all of the the orcs. You know that sort of going down in a blaze of glory. That would have been such a good ending rather than what we have them running over bits of uh, rocks and uh, up and down gantries. It just was not very good. Talking of Sauron, what are your thoughts on Malcolm McDowell? As Soren, the writers and producers wanted a Khan-like villain. Did they succeed? I think I know the answer to this one. Darren, again, back to you.
1: I don't think that they got a Khan-like villain. I really love Malcolm McDowell's performance as Soren. It's a lot of fun. He really hams up certain scenes. He's just got this like really fun villainous vibe to him. That moment when he he meets um, the the Duros sisters for the first time, and he practically explains the plot and motivations in this um, really hammed up mm. speech about only then will I give you this weapon for you to retake the Klingon. And it's just so hammy, but it's fun. I really like it. I think it's just the right yeah. side of being over the top. And, and I think he's a good character. I mean, when, when, he, when he sees Kirk and he says, who the hell are you?
0: Just who the hell are you? He's James T. Kirk. Don't you read
1: history? he just seems to be having a a blast I I really do like Malcolm McDowell I think he has a really interesting motivation because you're kind of sympathetic to what he's wanting, he just wants his family back, he just wants to to live a life but he's a great villain because he's so selfish, he's happy to let billions die just to get what he wants and the the final moment as well when he sort of, uh, oh god moment where he looks, when he realises he's about to blow up, I think he's great there is one scene that was taken out of the film and you can see remnants of him where after he's done interrogating geordie LaForge, he comes back onto the crew and the dura systems what information did you have and he says a line let's just say his heart wasn't in it which seems a really strange line but there was a scene where he started torturing geordie by making his heart stop They took that out because they felt it was too disturbing. That line makes a lot more sense when you get that. One funny bit of uh, trivia is uh, on set, during one of the fight scenes, Malcolm McDowell accidentally punched Shatner. Apparently, he says he stood back and looked around at the crew. And while Shatner's holding his nose or whatever, the crew are all giving him the thumbs up. Because they didn't like Shatner and they were sort of like, he became a little bit of a hero. Apparently, as well, Shatner said to him, just so you know, this might affect your career because you'll forever be known as the person that killed um, Captain Kirk. And um, Malcolm McDowell, I think he replied, well, maybe people are sick of seeing you after all this time. Ooh, oh,
0: wow. There was a bit more to that as well because there was a lot of fan hatred against McDowell and he actually started receiving death threats. Mm. Dowell's response was, bring me back, I'll kill the other captain as well. <laughs> uh, so, I, I mean, I love Malcolm McDowell. I think he's a great actor. He has an ambiguity as to whether he can be good or evil. If you look at a film like Oh, Lucky Man, which he mm. made in the 70s, He starts off innocent but becomes more corrupted as the film goes on. Obviously, you've got the classics like Clockwork Orange. And I would point out as well, time after time. So he can play both of those sides. Unfortunately, he's let down by the script here. It's just a one-dimensional character. Even cutting out that torture scene, I would like to have seen more about his motivation, Mm. whether it's through flashbacks, which, as Darren said, they wouldn't have done because of the budget. But I needed that character fleshed out to believe in him more. He's not Khan. He's not even Christopher Lloyd in Star Trek III, unfortunately. But he should have been. He should have been much, much more. And they would have achieved that by rounding the character, which they didn't do.
2: I'd agree 100% with that. Malcolm McDowell, as an actor, has the capacity to be totally and really evil and full-on evil. But the character as written didn't allow for that. I agree with Darren. I would have liked to have seen that sort of stopping the heart. You'd have got a real sense of here's an evil psychopath who will stop at nothing. He doesn't care about torturing people and he certainly doesn't care about killing billions of people just so he can get what he wants, yeah. He didn't feel as if he'd been pumped up enough with backstory and evil scenes. and Or even scenes
0: where he's questioning what he's doing.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's always a great way, you know, and then that's very much the Thanos character. Yes, he does question himself, but then he goes, yeah. oh, oh, I'm going to kill half the people in the universe.
1: You know, there was a time when
0: I wouldn't hurt a fly. Then the Borg came.
1: And they showed me that... If there is one constant in this whole universe, it's death.
2: Afterwards I began to realize it
0: didn't really matter. We're all going to die sometime, it's just a question of how and when.
2: Okay, so let's move on to some of the other characters. Brent Spiner
0: seems to be the comic relief here. Did that work for you? No, he was awful. <laughs> It was shockingly bad. It was irritating. It was the scenes where it could have worked, where he's questioning his memory chip just as soon as the camera was off and I was almost cheering.
1: <laughs> no, awful. <laughs> Darren? It's corny. It's corny and in some places even cringey. F- funnily enough, my parents think it's uh, hysterical. There was a town when we used to if he had some sort of implement in the hand, we used to go, Mr. Tricorder. You know, so so they think it's, it's <laughs> hysterical. I, I, I personally <laughs> don't. The data that we know and love, he pretty much dies as soon as he puts that chip in because that, that's not the data that, that we know. It feels like a completely different character. And and if the one thing that I will say I do think really funny, and it's one of the funniest bits in the moment, is the old shit moment. That bit is funny. Otherwise... It's kind of a cringe but I think the Dora sisters have better comedy moments when they've got that bug in them. Geordie's uh, visor and they're watching the screen and they're saying he's must be the only Star Trek engineer that doesn't go to engineering, you know, <laughs> and the bit when they see Beverly Crusher and they say, Oh, human women are so repulsive. I think they've got better comedy moments in there. No, I absolutely hated it. It undone
2: the complete journey you'd been on with Data in The Next Generation, where, you know, he's always, what is it to be human? And what does being a human mean? And and when you're non-human in a human environment, and you've done all of that throughout the series. And then they just turned him into this oh, light comedy. Did not work for me. Okay, any thoughts on the rest of the cast?
1: Darren? massively underused. In fact, there actually was <laughs> yeah. um, a lot of resentment to, uh, amongst the cast that the film was centred so heavily around Stewart and, um, and Spiner. In the original TV show, you had your main three, you had um, you know, Shatner, Kelly and Nimoy and you had the supporting cast. And that very sort of travelled mm. over to the films. The difference in Next Generation is that in the TV series there was more uh, parity in the attention that they would receive, because although Stuart was the, the you know the, the main character as, as the captain, everybody else would get their own episodes where you're focused on their character. And Stuart would often there are many episodes where Stuart was anonymous in, in in the background. So I think they were used mm. to their characters shining more. And I think in this one, you know, it's so blatant that they, they don't get a, enough to, to do. I mean, for example, Beverly Crusher. She gets pushed in the sea by Data. She gets called ugly by a Klingon. And then she just disappears. That's it. Wolf, <laughs> w- Wolf, Wolf and Geordi hardly get anything to do out there. You know, Geordi gets this in the kidnapping scene. But he, Geordi, Wolf and Crusher, they're not in the, the last, like, third of a movie. For, for all we know, they died in the crash on the um, on, when the Enterprise crashed. We don't see them at, at all. Deanna Troy. the only scenes that she is in is if she's there for either Picard or Data to play off, to explain their own arcs. And so to be saying, oh, what is it? What's wrong? So that's all she gets. I understand why they were bemused by this, because these weren't just sideline characters. These were important, big characters. That's why I think that for All Good Things, they were all a really important part of that episode. I do think they were under service. And it's something that I think was a fault of all The Next Generation. I can see why they would feel hard done by. I don't think it was a good representation of this at all. Jeff?
0: I think the reason they were sidelined is they're not very good actors, I'm afraid. Oh, the, they, their careers on. outside of this haven't ever really taken off. I'll pick one out. That Marina Sirtis, that was just a shocking one-note, speak-your-weight performance. I I just felt she was shocking. Maybe, Darren, you have a point that they weren't given enough to to shine, but their careers never really took off. And I think it's because I just think they're average. And she in particular, as I said, it was like a speak your weight machine.
1: Mm -hmm. Write a reply to you, Darren. Yeah, they were playing established characters that they were able, would have been able to carry off perfectly fine in a movie as well as a TV show. You're not asking them to be brand new characters or, or anything like that. They, they are the established characters. They don't have to be the greatest actors or performers. Them being them characters, that would have been enough. I, I might as well say this bit here. I do think that the whole crew should have been there in the final scene. You've got the Enterprise destroyed because you have to end on a starship flying off into the distance. So you've got this starship that you've never seen before with this sort of rousing music. It's a new beginning because they've lost what is their ship, their home. I think you could have done a really good scene where all the crew are like stood in an observation deck, looking down at the wreckage of the Enterprise. And as they're pulling away, and they all stand together, and then the ship goes off into the distance. And I think that would have been a far better... Because it's almost like they, they, you know, their Enterprise is gone, their family unit is still there, they've got each other. And also it's kind of like a... You know, everyone survived. They're off going off. It's, it's a new beginning, as opposed to just Riker and Picard beaming up, and and that's it. And all the rest of the crew could be dead for all we know because we've not seen them for the last half hour in the film.
2: This is really pissing me off now, Darren, because your film's far better. You have the big fight with the Klingons, the Boromir thing. You'd have better fitting uniforms, and you'd have a better ending. Yeah, I'm, yes, let's do the Darren director cut. <laughs> <That'd> be <laughs> I'd be for there. that.
0: Okay. (laughs) Uh, The writers also didn't want that final shot in the film. They felt a better ending would have been Picard and Riker disappearing off that set as they beamed up and the camera just holds on that set, which was then destroyed. That's what they wanted.
2: Let's go to the production side of things. The highlight of the special effects was the space battle did you find that impressive, Jeff, as you found nothing else impressive? Did that call back the Star Trek II for
0: you? Uh It did. The, the, the space battles, I thought, were really good. And you can see the money spent on them. There are dodgy stuff through it. I mean, the model shot where it crashes on the planet, and I accept that's with the time it was filmed. I mean, you had this model crashing, and then you end with a digital shot of the sorcerer at rest. There were some really weak moments in the effects earlier on with mat lines, and I've got to say this, Graham, when you throw a bottle of champagne in space, which you can do, <laughs> oh, when no. it hits the side of a ship, it would not explode like that. It would implode. Bloody just nice. saying. Okay. So the special effects missed that one. But $60 million movie, I would have expected all to be consistent. But I did. I will be positive here. Like the space battles.
2: <laughs> Darren, <laughs> production side of thing,
1: missing out champagne, please. I loved the space battle. This is something I said from the very first Star Trek review that we did. I don't care about the quality of the special effects. I care more about what you do with them. And I thought it was a really exciting battle thing. Let's put aside the the whole sort of the idea that a, a Klingon bird of prey would take down the Enterprise. It's like a TIE fighter taking down the Millennium Falcon. But what's great about it is it has a story to this fight. You know, the fact that the Klingons managed to get their, their shield frequencies so they can shoot through them. And the fact that the Enterprise can't match them with, with their sort of weapons, so they have to outthink them. I think that's great. I love the fact that there's a, a story to this. The people who made Star Wars could should... You know, take this into account, where they just have about like you know fifty odd um, ships on and um, firing billions of lasers into each other with, with the end game, but they've you've got to blow one spe- specific thing up to to win. And in fact, actually, the the people make the new Star Trek should take a look at this because they do the exact same thing. <laughs> this, this, to, this to me was having a space battle and telling a story at the same time, and I think it was really great. The thing that really takes me out of this is when the Klingon ship blows up, they reuse the footage from Undiscovered Country of that Klingon ship blowing up. And I hate that sort of stuff. And it really takes me out. Because let's face it, this was one film ago that they're using that same clip again. It's so cheap. In
0: Star Trek 2, all the dry dock stuff was from Star Trek The Motion Picture.
1: Yeah, but that's just a static type scene. Yeah, if you re that scene, you're practically just doing the same thing again. Whereas this one, this is actually a ship blowing up in a specific way. It's far more noticeable. This is far more of a crime to me. But That's the thing that really brought it down. But I'll, I'll actually disagree with you about the um, the crashes as well. Because, okay, it's maybe looking at it from today, the model doesn't match like today's special effects. But again, they're doing something with it. They're doing something dramatic and cinematic. The fact that they're cutting from the, the ship crashing to the ground to the crew, how they're reacting, the fear on them. I think that's a great crashing scene. I would rather the special effects scene that is not top-notch special effect, but is doing something really exciting with how it sort of comes across. I, I would take the scenes in Battle Beyond the Stars or the scenes in um, The Rise of Skywalker, because at least there's some sort of flair and doing something interesting with them.
0: I, I can't argue with you on that, but I, I do say on this that, I mean, firstly, I didn't notice that Klingon ship blowing up was from another film. Nope. So that, that made nothing to me. I thought it was quite exciting within the context of, of what it was showing.
1: Also, I just want to point out the budget wasn't 60 million. It was half that. According
0: to Wikipedia, it's 60 million dollars. Is that wrong?
1: Uh, yeah, I think it came in around about 30 million
0: I accept I got that budget wrong. I was looking at sixty million from from information I found on the net, and clearly I am wrong. That doesn't mean to say I won't go searching after this show is over, (laughs) but for this for this moment in time, yes, I did have a beer with my staff while I was working, and do accept that thirty five million is the figure that's being quoted. I do apologise. I will now resign.
2: Yeah, that's never going to happen in real life.
0: Even IMDb are quoting 35 million, so I don't know where I got that from. Clearly, I was in the Nexus at the time.
2: Right, let's talk about the Nexus. Is it heaven, like Star Trek Five? Have we put religion back into Star Trek, says Jeff in this question, because I would never put this question in.
0: Well, no, because you would deny it. But the fact is, <laughs> like Star Trek V, this series has moved into New Age religion. I mean, the nexus is clearly heaven. There's no time there. Everything is perfect for you. Be Goldberg's a guiding angel, a bit like Clarence, and oh, it's a wonderful grief. life. No, I disagree. I don't understand why you're laughing at that. That's clearly what she's there to be. She's the angel. And Stewart rejects heaven. Which you know, he's a so he's a fallen angel in effect. You oh. could make the case that Stuart, in rejecting Christianity, which is what this film does, is essentially a demon, but it, the nexus is heaven. Okay. I'm sure Darren will agree with me because yeah. he hasn't agreed with anything I've said yet.
1: <laughs> Darren, do you know bollocks when you hear it? <laughs> I, I do, and this is complete bollocks as well. It's it's nothing to do with religion at all, <laughs> just because something is a A heaven type sort of connotation doesn't make that religion. It's not. And if anything, I don't think that this this the nexus is a positive thing at all. I don't think it is heaven. If anything, I think it's got a very sinister connotation to it. It's almost like a drug tries to get you to uh, get in there and and stay by you know by by sort of these weird hallucinations.
0: Or as you're saying, it's LSD
2: for Catholics. My view was that it was a time loop of some sort, because Kirk had been in there 70 odd years and he still hadn't finished chopping that wood and he still hadn't managed to scramble any eggs. I thought it was one of those roundhog day things where he's, he's living this one day in his life over and over and over again.
0: I stand by its subliminal religion. <clears throat> oh, God, right, okay. Right, let's move on with
2: leaving Kirk's death out of it for the moment. There were many problems with the third act, the ease of getting out of the nexus, going back, to that moment with Soren, etc., did it work for you, or could it have been developed further, Darren?
1: Let's let's just face it. But the Nexus is a MacGuffin. It's just a really yes cheap, flawed <laughs> MacGuffin. We've just way so many inconsistencies. If you're going to enjoy this film at all, you've just got to give it a pass and just say, "Okay, yeah, whatever," because n- nothing makes sense about it uh, at all. You know, the, the the stuff we know about the Nexus changes constantly. I mean, one of the things that we say about Sorin is that he can't fly into the Nexus uh, because any ship that does there will be destroyed. Well, in the first time we see the Nexus, there's two ships in there. You know, yeah, they do get destroyed, but also that's how <laughs> they got into the Nexus. And now we're saying, oh, no, we can't get into the Nexus. We also have the thing that it's obvious that you can beam in and out of the the, the Nexus. Uh, you know, the whole thing with Guinan's essence uh, being in the Nexus and talking to Picard doesn't make sense because the Guinan essence that would have been left in there by D- Guinan-
0: does it, She's an angel.
1: <sighs> oh, shut up. <laughs> She would, you know, would not know anything about what's going on with Sorin or what's happening to Picard in the outside world. It is what it is. It's a result of the writing process and how, how much time they had at the, at the time. It's a sign of of something being really badly written. But at the end of the day, they just wanted to get Kirk and um, and Picard together. I think all that would have been like really forgivable if it wasn't for the fact that what we get after the nexus the the actual the the fight scene between kirk picard and and Sorin. if we didn't have something which was looked really really cheap that whole scene on the cliff it looks like a it's shot like a blake seven scene where they just found some sort of like deserted (laughs) mountain but the scenes where you know Sorin runs off and then you see kirk like slowly climbing up after him and everything I think if we'd had a real dramatic final act, we'd have sort of forgotten all of that stuff in the Nexus and think, you know, this is what we got. But I think that on top of the Nexus thing, it makes a whole sort of last third of a film just come across as really uh, cheap and, and rushed.
0: A non-cinematic TV type ending. I think that's that, that's right. It's, I mean, it's all shockingly bad. And I'll, I'll give you another example, which I didn't pick up till I listened to the writer's commentary. When... Picard's in the nexus, he looks at the Christmas tree and sees a little light shining in the baubles. Mm. Do you know what that is? No. No. So what that is, and he sees it when he goes outside, it's him trying to remember that rocket sent into that star and destroying it. So it's him trying to pull back. But it's not clear. And the writers acknowledge they didn't make that clear enough as to what it actually was. But the big kicker is, right, okay, you're going to come out of the nexus Right, I'm going to go back to the key moment of danger and fight Soren there, and I'll need someone to come with me, rather than go back two months beforehand and um, take out Soren then. And by the way, when he does come out and go back in time to that point, where's his other self? Why isn't he there? <laughs> so it, it's just flawed absolutely awful writing whereas you know a lot of incidents and a lot of things in the first two acts like both of you it did had kept me entertained reasonably engrossed with it it's not brilliant but that last third just made a complete hash of it and the writers acknowledge it so fair credit um.
2: and let's go on by you know the ending and kirk's death darren what was the original intention, and, and why did it have to be reshot? Because I thought Kirk's death was really badly undersold, even in
1: the reshoot. So what was it like in the first shot? This was one of the big reshoots that they did for this film and we to spent a lot of money on. You can actually find this on YouTube. Um, it is there, the, the rough cut of it, so it is quite interesting. But I, I'll describe it what I can. At the end, you've got Picard gets to the control panel, but it's closed. Kirk is down below and he gets into a fight with Soren and he actually basically just knocks out Soren and then takes the control device off Soren and then goes over and decloaks it so Picard can start messing with the control. But just as he's done this, Soren wakes up and he shoots Kirk in the back. Meanwhile, Picard, he's changed the trajectory of the rocket so the rocket blasts off, but it just goes in the air and then just comes straight back down again and, and blows up on a hillside. And so um, Soren, like looks at this in, in in shock. He runs up to the top of his structure and stands there at the top with his arms up. And then the ribbon comes along and it floats harmlessly overhead just by a few feet because the rocket didn't hit the the, the sun and send the, the shockwave that would have sent the ribbon closer to, to him. It, in itself, is a really naff thing to do because if... Soren had then built a couple of extra layers on his structure on that ladder. He'd have been high enough basically just to go into the ribbon without it sort of like, you know, <laughs> destroying the planet or anything. So so that bit doesn't really make any sense. Anyway, Picard sees that Kirk is dying and he and he goes down to him and Soren comes down off the ladder and Picard sees Soren and just shoots him in the chest and kills him. He shoots a, uh, an unarmed man. And uh, Kirk dies in sort of like, you know, right by Picard. Picard says, we made a difference. And Kirk says, anything for the, uh, the captain of the Enterprise. And then he basically just passes away. I think he still does the oh my moment, but you know, that, that's how it was. Test audiences did not like this in the slightest. They felt that it was a a cheap way to kill off Kirk and so they uh, they went back and they reshot the uh, the scene that we actually got, which I don't think is, is massively better. Kirk, when he's on that bridge, he has to put himself at risk. And by getting to the control thing and setting that off, and then that bridge collapsing, at least he's put himself in a position that ultimately killed him so that he can um, decloak the thing so Picard can do his stuff on there. So... It's sort of, It is a slight improvement. It looks hokey as hell. I mean, when when um, Kirk jumps from one bit of on the bridge to the other, it looks really sort of cheap because it's it's about like two foot away. Anybody could have jumped on on that, but it does. <laughs> and I don't like the thing of Kirk dying or like trapped in the rubble and everything because the bridge collapsed. But I think it does give him a bit of a better send-off in the way that you focus on his uh, face. And I do think that Picard putting the clamps on the rocket so that it ex- explodes in Soren's face, I think it's a cleverer, more dramatic way than just sort yeah. of sending the rocket off and it come down again. You know, because it's you get the thing that Soren's got to the thing. It's, oh my God, he's won. Oh no, he's not. He's outsmarted him. And Soren's looking his face before he blows up. So I think it does improve it somewhat, but I don't think it's, uh, you know a massive amount on on what we got. This is a slight improvement. It makes a little more sense.
0: What I would say in, in defence of what, what we've now got on screen is that, and it goes back again. See, I'll show you now that I did watch the first season of Next Generation. The death of Tasha Yar, which is sudden and dramatic and unexpected. This is grimy and horrible. It's not that heroic a death. I think that, played for it certainly when i saw it the first time that i found reasonably shocking it it certainly impacted on me that you knew this character wasn't going to come back to that and i would also say and you lot may say now that i'm 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 mocking but i'm not i'm actually serious in this is his death is an acceptance of christianity whereas in whereas in the nexus as you're saying it was a false heaven when he says oh my and he's looking in the distance he is seeing the real heaven. So it's an acceptance of Christianity, I think, as well, and can play like that.
2: <sighs> okay.
0: Right. So. Okay. <laughs> I take that quietness as acceptance. Or whatever. <laughs> no, we're just shaking our heads,
2: Jeff. That's the problem. It doesn't come over on audio. So is the second death of Kirk an emotional moment for you?
1: Well, obviously it is for you, Jeff. What about you, Darren? Yeah, it, it does hit. I think it's you know it's a it's a really moving scene for me. I, I do think it's funny that apparently when they first came up with the idea of killing off Kirk, that they thought we'd really have to sell this to Sh- to Shatner because we didn't think he'd be up for it. And he yeah, he absolutely jumped at the chance. And to me, I don't understand why they think he wouldn't, because why would, why would he not jump at this chance to go out in a blaze of glory and steal all the headlines from this film? It, 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 pay, it plays into his ego perfectly. Perfectly plays into the Shatner yeah. ego. Seriously, I think it is emotional. I think it's really well done. And you see that moment when there's that look in his eye and he just does that, oh my. Him as well as the audience, you realise this is it. This is the end. It's a really great moment. Picard being there with him, being the the one who's going to carry on the Star Trek legacy, a lot of people really didn't like the fact that Picard buries Kirk in this understated way without a big ceremony and everything. Mm. I think that actually works better because I think there's a dignity Mm. to to this. And I think that because Picard is the one who's going to be the captain of the Enterprise in the films going forward, this is like the symbolic passing of the keys as it was giving kirk the rest that he's earned the thing about kirk as as well is he's not a person who's on pomp and ceremony you see his dream is to live in a cabin out in the middle of nowhere it's one of the things that i think it, emotionally it does get right i think it is a really nice sort to of touch the end so yeah i i i think it's a really good um, farewell Captain Kirk, his ego was so big they had to kill him twice. Speaking of ego, I just got to throw this bit in as well. Shatner, even though this was the final Kirk appearance on screen, Shatner, who was a notorious for writing really, really bad novels, actually wrote a series of Star Trek novels about what happens after generations. And he wrote a novel first called The Return, where the Borg come along and they resurrect Kirk and have him basically oh. leading a oh. Borg invasion. Oh. And so he carries on the Kirk storyline. It's that Shatner thing that yeah, he's then go back to his character, but then he wants to go back and bring back Kirk and have him be sort of like you know, the best cat Star Trek captain of all.
2: So any other points you'd like to make Darren before we uh, conclude?
1: My sort of main reservations is and these are just sort of things as as a next generation fan is Again, I've said outright, I don't think the crew is serviced well. I, I think they could have basically been so done in the final scene. I, I do think as well that the there's a lack of gravitas when it comes to the fate of this Enterprise because we, we've been watching the adventures of this ship for six years, and when it is destroyed, no one really seems to give a toss. They just sort of like you know get on with the excuses and move on. <laughs> if you compare this to Star Trek Three, the Enterprise there essentially sacrifices itself so that the crew can survive. And as they're watching it float off into Mm. the distance and become like a comet, it's a real good fitting farewell it's almost like a Viking funeral and this one it's just oh well we can't fix the Enterprise so we're just going to move on but you know what they'll be building another ship that we'll call Enterprise soon um, come on Riker let's get shit faced that's what it feels like it, even the crew I think they could have done with a few shots of the crew finding them you could have sort of seen like Worf and seeing Deanna and, and, and Geordium and sort of saying oh thank god you're alive and everything incidentally at this point Worf and and Deanna are meant to be a couple, but you never get that in this uh, in this film. There could have been some sort of moments of the crew all coming together at the at the end, you know, to give it you know a bit of you know because throughout the series of Next Generation, there was a real warmth for a developed. They started off as quite cold to each other, but they became a slowly a family, and you don't get that in this one. It's a new era that we're gonna be going on with new films with a new shape and things. I just think they could have done with some sort of some like bonding and final sort of farewell moments to, to the old TV show style. And, and we didn't get that. It just feels rushed. Uh, I'd agree absolutely with that. They just seemed to be a
2: complete muddle at the end.
0: For me, overall, the plot in the first two acts, going back to it now, is fast-paced, overcame many of the shortfalls of acting and scale. But <clears throat> Star Trek was clearly moving into a fan zone at this stage and not for ordinary people, is my take from it. But I would say, you know, even with the failures of the third act, it's better than Star Trek V. So it's not the worst in the series, but it's close.
1: Uh, Darren, any last thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I actually, it's probably in my bottom half of of favourite Star Trek films, but I do think there's a lot to enjoy in there, the battle with the Klingon shape, Kirk and Picard meeting, obviously. And I do think that the transition between the the original crew and, and you know the adventures of this one, I do think for most of the film, it is enjoyable. I think there's a lot of faults with it. The, the data stuff, great. The, the Nexus stuff is obviously a, a McGuffin, and it, it starts to go downhill for that. And I think the final battle... Is underwhelming. We, we really should have had something bigger and grandiose, you know, like, like the originally planned. I think that would have been better. But overall, if this is on TV, I, I will watch it for, for a bit. It's not something that I would choose to watch constantly. But if there's a Star Trek marathon on and, and it's there, I'll, I'll watch it. I think there's enough fun things in there. I just think that there was a sort of like a, a transition between the tv series and into the films here and i think they should have worked, you know they should have had this being like a an ending but a beginning feeling to the to, to the final scenes and we didn't really get that i think they missed the warmth of what a lot of the crew were and what they they were to each other i, I like it a lot more than a lot of star trek fans do
2: yeah and i probably agree with that and um, the first two acts were excellent the third one was terrible and it really does look like something that's been rushed it's not cinematic enough and the music is shockingly bad
0: okay so that was star trek generations a film in which i actually got a major fact wrong so i'm now going into that holodeck thing and turning into a dungeon for a couple of hours where i'll stand well i'd say i will not question darren again (laughs) Next time on the show, we'll boldly go on to discuss what many believe is the high watermark of the Star Trek Next Generation movies being First Contact. Until then, as Darren said at the beginning, and whatever it means, live long and prosper.